Welcome to Politically Pissed, the podcast that wants to inform you if you don't vaccinate your children, it's basically abortion with extra steps. Yeah, guns close doors to the system. Yeah, fuck them when we say we're not with them. We're solid and we don't need to kick them. This is no southeast or western. Welcome to Politically Pissed. My name is Saeed Sharbini, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Katya and Eris. Go ahead and say hi, guys. Hi. What's good, y'all? All right. And today we're joined by Chris Hines. Do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about your campaign and what you're doing? Sure. My name is Chris Hines, and I am running for Denver City Council's District 10. Where is District 10? It is Uptown, Capitol Hill, Golden Triangle, Cheeseman, Congress, Cherry Creek and Country Club. And there are a couple other neighborhoods, but that's the basic idea of where District 10 is. So I'm looking at the map right now, actually. It's pretty centralized, and I'd say a lot of the communities are somewhat similar. Would you? Um, I would actually say it's kind of a tale of two cities, so to speak, because the first five neighborhoods, Uptown, Capitol Hill, Golden Triangle, Cheeseman, and Congress, are kind of like one side of the equation, and Cherry Creek and Country Club are kind of a different side of the equation. It's it's a really diverse district in that way, in that uh, the, the one side has a lot of millennials, young progressives that are interested in uh, a lot of progressive values, and then the other side, Cherry Creek and Country Club, are far more established residents in Denver. They are more often homeowners, They're more often older than the first five neighborhoods, and they very often vote. I mean, I guess my thing is I was thinking of how many of these neighborhoods would you say are low-income neighborhoods? So Capitol Hill has uh, some low-income residents, and uh, so the the number one neighborhood that, uh, that has the people who work in Cherry Creek Mall is Capitol Hill. And the number one neighborhood of the service industry that works downtown is Capitol Hill. But to your point, for the most part, you're right. This is not generally seen as an underserved or socioeconomically depressed district in Denver. So we're talking about more ideals and old money versus progressive youth, youth with money. To that end, what sort of struggles or things do you see in the neighborhood that you can help with? The the issues in District 10 are very similar to the issues in all of Denver. Um, the top two in, in this district are housing and transportation. Um, housing as in need a- we all need access to housing. I used to say we were in an affordable housing crisis. We're just in a housing crisis at this point. And that means a couple different things, you know, and again, the tale of two cities here uh, for people who live in Capitol Hill, uh, some of the janitors or service industry workers, uh, it means that uh, they may have a, um, a roof over their head, but that roof is in a 120-year-old building with no dishwasher, no washing machine, no heat, no air conditioning, or, or maybe there's a radiator that works. Uh, it's either on and it's 95 degrees in the in the house or uh, or unit and if it's off it's zero degrees or you know whatever the temperature is outside so how do you go to proposing improving living conditions and stuff like that like how do you force owners that lease or rent these places out to do those things well the there i mean so (laughs) wow um District 10 is in many ways a model of what the whole city can do, and specifically Capitol Hill, because uh, what has happened in Capitol Hill over over the last 100 years or so is some of the buildings that are 5,000 square foot homes have been subdivided into three or four or five units. Yeah, I've got plenty of friends that live in some of those, yeah. Yeah, right. But for the most of the city, a single-family home is zoned as a single-family home, and they can't be subdivided or else they violate the ordinances in the in the city of Denver. So one of the things that we can do in the city is uh, urban planners call it the missing middle. 
Um, there's a lot of area in the city that's single family housing. And then there's areas in the city that are like hundreds of units. Uh, like where I live, there are 141 units. Immediately across the street, there are 400 units in one building. And across the street on the other block, there are 340 units all in one building. Mm-hmm. But there's something in between. And that's you know having two units or three units or four units in a subdivided house or an auxiliary dwelling unit or ADU. That's that's another potential option that we've had historically in Capitol Hill that hasn't shown its uh, itself in in other areas of the city. So, would you be proposing some legislation or something that would force these people to tear down these structures and rebuild to accommodate this, so you have like, you know, pl- you could take the plot where you have one house and put like four or five like units on it, something like that. Uh, well, actually, the part of the magic is that you don't have to tear down the house. You can preserve the uh, the historic nature of the building, but then you can, you know, once you, uh, you can take the inside and convert it into multiple units, whereas right now it's just one big unit. But we're talking about most of the houses, or not most, but some houses have been converted into those multi-units where, like, the basement's one, the first floor has, like, two different apartments in, and the third floor does the same and then maybe there's an attic with an apartment or something like that these are huge five thousand six thousand square foot houses they've been converted i mean you're saying that they're old though and they don't have all the amenities that people need how do you like make that work well so any sort of development in um in a a neighborhood as old as capitol hill uh, has to weigh improvements in accessibility with historic preservation and uh, and there are a lot of historic buildings in uh, in Capitol Hill. There are you know historic um, districts in Capitol Hill, but outside of those historic districts, I think we can still take the outside of the of the home and and keep it very similar to the way it looks today. And then on the inside, either you know I don't know. It depends on the on the particular unit, but sometimes it could be. Uh, minor renovation sometimes it might be major renovation on the interior but the exterior could still look the same so it 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 has a a kind of a more welcoming feel from the outside and it doesn't uh it it, it, the part of the concern is historic preservation and part of it is a part of the concern is just that sometimes things look ugly and and we want to make sure that we preserve some of the charm and character in our neighborhoods and preserving the outside of the of the house would preserve some of that charm so you can keep the aesthetics but help people on the inside yeah so, okay. exactly I get, yeah i mean i to me it kind of sounds like um a really powerful hoa sort of thing where you're just sort of forcing people to maintain standards or something like that you might be controlling landowners from what they can do with their property and stuff like that I mean, do you see any issues with that maybe? I don't really see it necessarily as uh, controlling. What I'm, what I actually, what's not, what is going on now is they're not allowed to do it at all. They're, they're not allowed to subdivide. So in fact, I would say um, this is an idea that would be freeing them, giving them additional options. Whereas right now they either have the option of keeping it the way it is or scraping it and starting over, and some of the people who live in the you know in the in the neighboring plots are pissed off because of all these scrapes that then look totally different than the all the buildings in the well, rest. And of the we saw it in the Highland with the slot homes and everything like that. And I I totally get trying to avoid that. I'm going to jump in here, yeah. and I'm going to have Eris pull me out of the rabbit hole. Um, have fun, buddy. Here we go. Did you know that? I went to the elementary school that was right here on 18th and Logan. It was actually a Catholic high school at one point, and they bulldozed it. So back in the late 90s, this where you live now it was a crack house. So this neighborhood has changed. Lots of neighborhoods have changed. Yeah. She did mention that, though. She said the park across here used to be like Skid Park or something. It used to be called Syringe Park. There and stuff it like used that. To, yeah. I we, mean, you said you've been here for over a decade on our way up. What have you seen change here? The, the park that's... Uh, block away benedict fountain park it actually used to have a cul-de-sac and there's a church uh that's right there as well and baptist the, church. yeah the the baptist it's southern baptist i believe and the the church is very vibrant they'd have services for two or three sometimes four hours and 
Uh, and that was a lot of the vitality of the park. Outside of Sunday service, the park was uh, was used, but when I first got here in 2007, it was used as an off-leash dog park. Uh, but outside that, there weren't, uh, not a lot of people used Benedict Fountain Park uh, other than for, for drug use. And in some ways it's kind of cleaned up a little bit, but you could still find needles in the grass. You could still find, you know, people who are without a home who are, you know, sleeping there. Well, and I, I wonder if, you know, five points and stuff like that starting to push people out. Are they starting to push them this way? And I mean, I know they've probably been pushed out of here before. Like, I don't, I'm asking, like, how is it? How is the movement? Have you seen, like, with drug use and stuff like that? Like, I would say that the gentrification... Um, and I would say that that gentrification is a bit of an issue, but the gentrification has been going more towards the north as opposed to coming south. You know, this this building was completed in 2005. Because it's nice over here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yes, and uh, and all the there are a bunch of service lots that used to be in Uptown, and a lot of them have been replaced with you know 300, 400 unit apartments. Uh, but uh, but as you go a little bit north, there's been a fair amount of scrapes in the, you know, in the um, uh, Five Points neighborhoods in Whittier and Cole and whatnot. And you know, so I think that's that's where the gentrification is going. And as I as I watch Brother Jeff, uh, he talks about it a lot as well because his studio and his um, his cultural facility are both in Five Points. You start talking about the unesthetically pleasing nature of a lot of the scrape homes that you see pop up that actually take away from the character of neighborhoods. But at the same time, when you start zoning places in historical districts, you run into the issues of not just space, but you know land value and how it changes with how the property is built. How do you propose to get around some of the other aspects that make it really unaffordable to live in this particular neighborhood while balancing what would be in some cases the more affordable option which is to scrape and rebuild yeah yes i i think that is possible and i've actually had uh, several conversations with the american institute of architects colorado chapter which they're actually they're just based a couple blocks away so it's easy for me to get over there but uh but i think that everything's a balance right and we want to balance government overreach with the aesthetics or the ugliness of a of a neighborhood and so the aia colorado chapter is actively in discussions on how to do that because even they say some of the stuff that's being built here in denver is ugly you know just quote unquote i mean you're going to be on the city council or you're trying to run to be on the city council at least you would be tasked with responsibility and the council's already done it to set sort of standards of now new buildings that are built they have to have this parking capacity for them then there's also the one where you can't have the slot homes anymore they have to be doors facing the road and stuff like that i mean you're going to have to restrict people's uses of their property i mean you have to do it like yes <laughs> yes <laughs> i agree but you're but you're talking about not overstepping bounds and like deterring people from what they can do with their own property yeah okay so uh, let me just kind of take a step back for a second yeah. uh, so in a healthy competitive environment by the way i have a computer science degree and i have an mba in finance so talking a little bit about business in a healthy competitive environment i think that government should not intervene what do i mean by healthy competitive environment if there are many companies that are working, uh, competing against each other where the consumer benefits, then I think that's a healthy environment. And I think that you know government should stay out. They, we call that market forces. But here's, here's where I start to get concerned. Mm. A company's express purpose is to maximize shareholder value, to make their owners rich, basically. Mm. Yep. And... Uh, so if a CEO, let's say a developer, you know, he wants to, or she or they want to, uh, to build on a property and they want to go above and beyond and install additional affordable units. Well, if they do that, that lowers the profitability of that project, which makes it more difficult to get investors. It also makes it more difficult to get a good rate of return. Right. And I guess these are kind of like, down the rabbit hole of finance but here's the here's the gist if they don't maximize their profitability for their owners then the ceo can get fired can get sued 
can go to jail. So who represents the people? Government represents the people. And when that healthy competitive force breaks down, then that's when government should get involved. Did you? So as we go on to healthy competitive nature of building, how many developers do you know currently that are focused on not building large plots in this area? Um, a lot of the things that we've talked about is the, ma the majority of units are being built. A lot of them are pushed by developers because those are maximizing profitability. And if you were looking for that sweet middle, how do you incentivize developers or regulate developers and to where they are going to start building smaller dwellings affordable. For, that are affordable? I, I talked with an economist just last week and who uh, lives in the district, and he was saying the only way to solve the affordable housing crisis is to create more housing. You know, so you can't, you can't just magically put someone into something that doesn't exist is what he, was, what he was getting at. Yeah, no, and that's a fair point, right? Like you have the whole supply-demand argument. But at the same time, when you still have builders building, but what they've decided to do is instead of building housing that people can buy, they are building rentable area, um, rentable condominiums and apartments. You know, you have to then pull them to the table to then have that discussion about, hey, build homes. Oh, <laughs> uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So that's a, that is a different conversation. That's um, so the reason why we have this market so in a healthy market i believe the the ratio is about 25 or 20% of the uh, available units okay. are condominium units and right now in colorado it's less than 5% but the the basic the gist is that it's out of whack and here's why there were a bunch of building uh, defects lawsuits in the early 2000s and mid 2000s and actually the this the building that I live in was one of those building defects lawsuits. So the building was completed in 2005 and the HOA sued the developer. So I have personal, you know, personal knowledge and a personal example of, of, you know, what was going on at the time. I want to get down to a, a personal issue for me. I'm super excited that you're running because like you, I have a disability. I have been waiting for a long time for a person with a disability to run for office. I would actually be elated if somebody ran for office for a representative or senator because uh, I believe the House of Representatives is not accessible in Colorado. Kudos to you for starting this. Regardless of how this turns out, this is a big, uh, this is a big step for our community. Um, and as far as access goes, um, building, ac building accessible housing is, is a huge concern because when, I, when my husband and I were looking for apartments, places where we, could afford to, where we can afford to live are usually on the second floor and usually places that are accessible f for me, they're new units. I think it, it's something that is not on a whole lot of people's minds and, and it won't be on a, a whole lot of people's minds until like our parents get to that point, our parents' age get to that point where they're not able to move around as they used to. That's, uh, wow, so many, place, so many directions I could go in. So I will just start at the end. Colorado's a younger than, than average age state, but mm -hmm. by 2040, one in three of our uh, residents in Colorado will be seniors. And they overwhelmingly, you know, relative to the rest of the population, have disabilities just because they've they've had more time here on They're older. Yeah, and well, yes, exactly. So by 2040, we will have we'll have a challenge with housing because we've or we've required developers to create minimum numbers of units that are accessible, but that minimum number is two percent. So when we have a third of our, you know, population being seniors in 2040, that's that's 33%, which is greater than 2%. I know that's a lot of math, yeah. but it's not high-level math and we're going to have a serious challenge here in the next 20 years. So Arizona, my parents are going to you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to do a slight pivot. We're going back to developers and stuff cuz you mentioned them again. I wanted to talk about something that if you're on the city council, you're going to have to deal with because they've been dealing with it now is the Colorado Convention Center. 
I'm not sure how aware of this you are, what's going on with it. If you have some familiarity, I can give you some background notes if you like. We've talked about it a couple times on the podcast. Go for it. Okay, so Denver leaders in December announced that they suspected two private companies, Trammell Crow and Mortensen, had corrupted in development process, renovating and adding on to the convention center. They accused Trammell Crow, the city's management company, of leaking sensitive information to the contractors, Mortensen, during the competition for the lucrative expansion job. I believe they shared emails too. Like the when this broke, mm-hmm. they had emails that they published, like the the news outlets published. I believe so. There were some that were out there. Uh, I think we directed some of our viewers to the Denver Post and stuff like that. The Attorney General Phil Weiser has now said that he's going to lean in and try to do some sort of an inquiry into it, try to find out what's going on. It was a two hundred thirty-three million dollar expansion and its public facility. The city council seems to have let it run amok. What do you propose doing about it? Like, what do you what do you want to do if you're in there to help remedy the situation, to bring these developers into the fold and try to make them cooperate better, be better players in the community and stuff like that? So I've talked with a bunch of different um, organized labor groups, and uh, and there are a lot of concerns about the process, the permitting process, the development process, uh, the construction process. So I I guess I've talked with uh, organized labor. I've talked with developers. I've talked with attorneys who represent developers. And I don't know anyone who has said the system is working as it should be or the system is working efficiently. I I mean, I I think the best thing for us to do is to get a process improvement consultant group, like a nationally organized or a nationally recognized, you know, process improvement group where they could come and analyze our permitting process, analyze the development process, analyze the contract and bidding process to see where we can, uh, where we can make sure that we have everything as open and transparent as possible. I think that public funds should have public accountability. I think that Denver taxpayers should be the recipient of taxpayer dollars. I think that there are, uh, I think it's better if we all succeed in the city. And and I think that uh, historically underserved populations should get a fair shake. And uh, so I've said a, several different kind of fun sound bites, but you know, so I'm circling the the plane. Help me, let me land it. The the basic idea is, while I don't know the the specific details of what happened with the the convention center, the information that I've seen on the news suggests that stuff's broken and we should we should fix it i think it's absolutely the right thing for for us as a city to make sure that minority and women-owned businesses get a fair shake or i'm okay with getting a preferential shake minority and women-owned businesses have been underserved for a long time and uh and i mentioned gentrification already i think that one of the ways that we can uh resist gentrification is providing jobs on these construction sites for the people who live in the communities where those jobs are happening and also provide employee ownership so that you can actually develop generational wealth as opposed to just a paycheck that you get at the end of the, you know, end of the job. There's probably a lot of developers that use subcontractors that are the women, minorities, and and those type of people who have those businesses and stuff like that. But I'm getting more to the high level, like developers in this city, like there's probably not much diversification who runs those big companies. I've even heard some people through my canvassing that own houses in these neighborhoods that are getting gentrified, say developers have come and knock on my door and said, we're going to build something here, we want to build something on your place or something like that, give it to us, or we're just going to take it. And basically saying the city's going to do whatever they want. They they roll over the city and stuff. I mean, are you going to stand up to them? Or how do you propose dealing with this kind of stuff? Like, I, I literally have had that conversations. That sounds horrible. It, it's absolutely horrible. And it's, it's what these developers are doing, though. I mean, they're putting up buildings, blocking views. People are complaining. And they're like, we don't care. We own the city council. Uh, I mean, 
and it's it's disgusting <laughs> to hear. I know, but these are things I hear from people I talk to at their doors. I would say. For many of the decisions, the administration is the zoning appeals process that's actually through the administration, through the executive branch, as opposed to the legislative branch. It's only when the zoning has to change that city council has uh, has its ability to... Or variances for height to allow exactly. southern block views and stuff like that. Right, view plane variances, yeah. sure. And but it uh, seems like they just walk over them. Well... <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sitting on city council yet, so fair. I yes, don't know fair. if I have a, uh, the inside track on, on what, you know, what exactly happens or doesn't happen with city council. That just, that sounds appalling. And I certainly, I would do my part to resist. I don't know exactly what that means resisting. If nothing else, there is a platform that a city council person has and an ear that you know, people will listen to an elected official more so than a private citizen. If there are these sort of inequities on city council, I'd, I would certainly, I would make that known. So Chris, I want to pivot. Campaigns are historically supposed to represent how you will then act as a leader when you are elected to office. What does your campaign say about you? And what can people glean from your campaign that says how you will function when you are in elective office? I think the biggest thing that I would say, so there are five people in this race, including the incumbent and me. Two of them have said, you're everywhere to me. Two of the five people have said, you're everywhere. Well, guess what? One of the, the biggest complaints that I've heard from my neighbors is that they don't feel represented. They don't feel like they ever see the District 10 office in the neighborhood, in the community. They don't ever see the office where they are, in in their coffee shop or at their rally or protest. And here's the crazy thing about District 10. There are a lot of rallies and protests in District 10 because it is a beautiful place to live and to exist. The city and county building is in 10. The museum is in 10. The Civic Center Park is in 10. The state capital is in 10. Like there are four areas right there that have are ripe for uh, people coming together as a community or, or protesting. Cheeseman Park. Park. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And uh, the Botanic Gardens. Yeah. And Congress yeah. Park and Cherry Creek Mall. I mean, you know, there are a lot of a lot of things that when people think of the city of Denver, they think of things that are in Denver's District 10. I would say that I am in all areas uh, all neighborhoods in District 10, even just this week, I went to the Country Club R&O meeting. The weird thing is that I don't see anyone else. I don't see anyone else. I don't see the incumbent. I don't see the other challengers. I don't know what they're doing, but maybe that's why people say that I'm everywhere. I mean, I post on social media sometimes, but I don't even post 100% of the time when I go attend meetings. Like the Country Club R&O meeting this past week, I didn't post on social media so I'm, I'm doing even more stuff than, than is, is public information. If, if there's one thing that I would say about my campaign that would be reflective of my time in office, I think it's we have a responsibility as an elected official, as a representative, to represent. It's in the title after all. And our representatives should represent us by being available in the office. And rep our representatives should be available by being in the community too. Well, thank you. As we get into that, you talk about, you have four other opponents in the race. Can you talk about what the process of running has been like for you? What are the financial impacts? How much do you have to spend now to be a councilman in Denver? I announced my candidacy on May 7th, so exactly one year before the election. I'm already three quarters of the way through the process, which is really weird because even now when I talk with voters in District 10, they say, I'm not thinking about that until closer to the election. And I'm thinking, holy cow. I mean, you know, like the runway has been huge. Most people don't know who their city council person is. Yes. That's true, yeah. that's, that's definitely that's true as well. That's Well, I mean, that also goes to Chris's point where nobody's seen them. <laughs> well, yeah, Wayne New is pretty well, invisible. It's great. I love it all. But I want to talk about other <laughs> candidates that have been visible lately or maybe possible candidates. I want to talk about Hickenlooper being in New Hampshire a little bit. We're going to pivot pretty hard here. We're, we're going to walk away from <laughs> We're all over. 
So now we're going to move into some topic things because we're over half an hour. I have one more thing to ask, Chris. All right, go ahead. You can have one more thing to ask. Go ahead. Okay. The Chris Hines Act. Okay. Let's talk about that a bit. You want to tell me a little, you want to tell us a little bit about what it is? So the Chris Hines Act is a transportation access bill. The the basic idea is originally was supposed to be a disability access bill. Here's what it does. Before January 1st of 2019, any valid disability parking placard in the state of Colorado got free parking at a meter statewide. That also happens to be the number one reason why people would fraudulently obtain and use disability parking placards. So you live downtown or you work downtown and parking's 200 bucks a month, or you could go to Craigslist and buy a valid disability parking placard for $250. Really, you could buy them on Craigslist. Oh, I believe Park it. Until it expires. Right. Uh, and it was a one-time charge of $250. So people found the loophole. Of course, not everyone knew about it, but not everyone is unscrupulous, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, so, so basically the legislative intent, the reason why you got free parking statewide with a placard is because back in the 50s when the placard was first started, it was for people with disabilities. And now that we've come 70 years and a lot more people qualify for it than who qualified for it in the 50s. And they just never changed the the law. But the intent was originally back in the 50s in California, it was for service members coming home from World War II who had lost both legs. Well, if you lost both legs, you're using a wheelchair, you're not going to be able to easily get to the parking meter anyway. So basically what the Chris Hines Act does is it more closely aligns the law with the legislative intent. It creates a new third disability parking placard, and to qualify for it, you meet one of three three criteria, all defined in statute, and each of them are basically, if your physical disability prevents you from paying a parking meter, you get the new placard, and this new placard gets free parking statewide. The current placards, the red and blue ones, those become a matter of local control. So like Denver, right now, explicitly in the municipal code, gives free parking for all placards. Well, they could change it so that just the new purple placard gets free parking. And frankly, if you can pay a parking meter and you get it for free, that's called a perk. That's not equal access, that's preferential access. Those with disabilities have been fighting for equal access for a long time, and it's somewhat disingenuous of the disability community to want to retain a perk when there are many other things where we don't have equal access. I agree. So in a sense, I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate, I guess. In a sense, you could say you took some some advantages that were given to disability people and took them away. I would disagree with that. Okay. So what what happened is there were people who could pay parking meters who were mm-hmm. getting free parking. But now if someone does get a regular handicap parking placard, say because they have a bum knee or something like that and they can't walk far, but they're able to pay a meter, now they have to pay a meter instead of before not having to. So you took away that perk, I guess. That perk, it. yes. Yeah, okay. and but here's the here's the idea behind parking meters in the first place. The idea of a parking meter was to encourage people to only park there as long as they need. If you get a legal exemption, as in these placards, then people park there for they didn't think about how long they parked there. There was actually a study, a UCLA uh, urban design graduate student did a study of the parking meters in downtown LA and Chinatown, and he found that the people who had to pay a parking meter parked for an average of 22 minutes. The people who who had a, a placard who parked for free parked for an average of 317 minutes. So it was just, it was pretty clear that, I mean, they were they were parking there all day. And they were abusing this system because they could. I'm a strong believer in equal access for everyone. And we just talked about equal access for minority and women-owned business. I agree with that too. We should we should all strive for equal access and an equal playing field. And if people start putting themselves in better buckets or worse buckets than everyone else, then the system breaks down. Does that answer your question, Katya? Yeah. Thank you for clear about it. Sure. Sure. Can we, can we go back to Hickenlooper now? Yes, now we get to go talk about <laughs> like other people who are running for yeah. office. So Hickenlooper was spotted in New Hampshire meeting with voters 
in an early primary state. Can we just say he's running now? <laughs> no, because he's not running. But Unless you count running for a cabinet position with somebody who can win as running for president. I guess. I don't know. What do you think of Hicken Looper? Oh, geez. I don't know him well. <laughs> um, I've talked to him a few times. Okay. I, I, don't, I don't know him well. Gotcha. So. Do you think he would make a good president? It is so much time between now and November 2020. I would say I'm a bit frustrated because I announced in May 7th and I had to go through a primary. And people were like, oh, I don't, I don't care about city council because there's a primary. And then we had to go through a general election. Oh, I don't care about city council in May 2019 because of November 2018. And now we're in February 2019. There are two, at least two cycles between now and the presidential uh, 2020 Is election. Is another municipal in 2020? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's the school board school in November board, 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. Like, I, it frustrates me a little bit that, like, they said – kid wait your time and you know <laughs> and, and now it's my time and now we're talking about 2020 so i yeah. you know so i the governor governor hickenlooper is a fine fella i think that many other candidates are fine people too i just i it sure would be nice thank you for interviewing municipal candidates yeah. because no. uh because i think it's you know i think it's important for us to have a little bit of exposure mm-hmm. Local government is the closest and the the one with the greatest influence on everyone's day to day life. I couldn't agree more, honestly, and that's why we Absolutely. do ask a lot of municipal candidates and stuff like that to come on because we want people to know their local elected officials. But everybody wants the big juicy gossip on the people running well, it's for the awesome. big offices. And <laughs> it's also that you know Hick is also from here. Yeah, and he's a let's local be honest. Guy. That's why he's we're not going to win, and you should <laughs> stop wasting his money. But. <laughs> You know, we give him a little bit more run because he is the yeah. local guy. Yeah. And then, of course, being Denver residents and Colorado residents, we uh, are happy to, I guess, are we happy to see him run for anything outside mm. of governor? I guess we're happy. Oh. Good for him. Okay. Uh, are we, are we going to pivot now? Yeah. We can if <laughs> you like. Yeah, we can pivot to something else. Uh, cut that one out. We can bring it back to more of a state-level thing. Uh, recently this week in the legislature, there was the uh, red flag gun safety and mental health bill that came up. Sure. Um, so Colorado lawmakers unveiled a new red flag bill Thursday that aims at taking weapons away from people deemed to be an extreme risk. The bill is called the Deputy Zachary Parrish III Violence Protection Act. Deputy Zachary Parrish was killed on New Year's Eve in 2017 by a man that they knew to have a history of mental illness but also had a weapon, and they couldn't take the weapon away from him because the law said they couldn't. But now they're trying to pass a bill that says they would be able to. They'd have to uh, go before a judge with reasonable evidence, and the judge would have to weigh that evidence to decide if the gun should be taken away. And at any point, the person can petition to have it back, but then they have to prove that they are able to have it back. So what are your feelings on some of these things? Like, As a city council member in a big city, and might have to deal with some gun violence here, so... The the prime sponsor of uh, ERPO, the Extreme Risk Protection Order, last year was Alec Garnett, my state representative. representative yeah. yeah, and so I knew a little bit more about this than uh, than the, you know than the, there were a lot of um, bills introduced, you know, hundreds of bills each mm-hmm. legislative session. I think seven hundred bills or so introduced last session, and I knew a little bit more about this one. Uh, than others, partly because Representative Garnett was uh, the prime sponsor. And now it's uh, Representative Sullivan and Representative Garnett co-prime sponsoring. And Representative Sullivan, his son was killed thanks to gun violence. Yeah, I know him personally. He's a really nice guy and has a great story behind him as far as, like, he was a soldier. He worked for the post office forever. He's a union man. Like, he's a great guy, but then there's this tragedy. Yeah. And and it changed his life, and I would say, you know, sometimes we have critical moments in our lives that change the direction of our lives. I, I've experienced one myself, and uh, we are the, you know, the sum of our experiences, and we are how we react to or we adapt to a, adversity. And I'm so glad that he is now elected and is a state representative because I see him as as having an opportunity to do a lot of good out of what was a lot of evil. And I support I support the extreme risk protection order, um, Urpo her red flag. I I thought that the 
the qualifications or the requirements to uh, to qualify for uh, for ERPO was uh, was reasonable in Colorado. It's more measured than than the the laws in other states. Can Can I ask you to elaborate on some of those? Because I couldn't find necessarily what some of the qualifications were, what some of the criteria for a judge to actually take away your weapons. You You could ask. I don't have them in front oh, of me, okay. but <laughs> I didn't know you knew any off the top of your head. But go ahead, ask away. Um, hey, do no, you know? Um, <laughs> I, I don't have them off the top of my head, but I certainly I could look for them. Okay. I do know that that they they took some of the of the laws in other states and then added additional measures. Like for example, I think it was Oregon was another state that had extreme risk protection order legislation already in place. They're not as gun friendly as Colorado is, and um, and there were a lot of gun recalls thanks to Rocky Mountain gun owners in 2013 that makes us as a state a little more reticent to uh, to to go nuts about getting rid of guns um, I would say I even the last time I posted about sensible gun reform was yesterday on social media can you tell us what you said I can thank you there was a mass shooting not long ago in a town called Aurora Mm-hmm. Illinois or Colorado? That's what I'm talking about. That's Whoa. the that's the horror of it is that this started hitting the news two days ago that there was a mass shooting in Aurora and people started getting triggered. You know, like PTSD. They were thinking because the because the articles weren't clear about which Aurora, oh. they were thinking it was in Aurora, Colorado again, mm. and that we were having you know a flashback <laughs> again, but. Despite that, I I said another day, another mass shooting. Yeah. Like we can't continue to bury our heads in the sand and say, you know, sensible gun reform doesn't make any sense. We should we should make everyone have guns or we should make everyone have two guns or whatever like, cuz you have two hands and so that'll, you know, that's it's really frustrating to me that that there was a mass shooting, say, for example, in Australia. And I know Australia is not the same as the United States, but there was a mass shooting in Australia. I think it was in 95. And they said, no more guns in Australia. And guess what? They've had no more mass shootings. I'm not trying to say that that's what we should do here in the United States. I don't think you ever could, honestly. No, Well, yeah. yeah. There's, and, uh, there's enough guns for every man, woman, and child in this country to have at least one. I mean, generally they are concentrated in certain people, but there's enough of them. They're not going anywhere. Yeah. Well, I'm from rural Texas. So you know. Right? (laughs) God bless Texas. And obviously I'm partial to Denver. I've lived here, uh, you know, 12 years and I'm happy. I have no interest in leaving the beautiful city of Denver, but, you know, we all remember our, our roots and, you know, rural Texas is very gun friendly kind of like Colorado is very gun friendly. Absolutely. And and so I would agree with you. I think it would be difficult to repeal the second amendment and I'm not even trying to start that discussion. I think that we can have sensible gun reform. I think that the city of Denver has already done some of that, like bump stocks as an as an example. I think that we can do other things that make sense. There are some things that city council can do in Denver directly. There are some things that Denver can do indirectly because it's the largest city in the state. There are some things that I can do as a city council person that other city council people may not have as much sway because I have a lot of relationships in the state capitol. So I've been endorsed by the lieutenant governor, Diane Primavera. I've been endorsed by the state treasurer, Dave Young. You know, I've been endorsed by more than 40 electeds and and organizations, predominantly at the state level, partly because one city council person is not going to endorse a challenger over an incumbent. That's just it's just bad, it, bad juju. It's you know, and and if you ever want anything passed, that's just a horrible decision to make. But I do have a lot of relationships with the state capital. The Chris Hines Act, as we talked about. That was a state bill that became law. Using those relationships as an elected official in the city of Denver, I think that if we work together, the city and the state, we can accomplish more if we work in conjunction, in lockstep, 
than if we uh, both act independently. So with gun control, I would say with climate change, again, Denver has a disproportionate outsized influence on the state with climate change too. So if we get bold and aggressive, like or Governor Polis, I almost said Congressman Polis, like Governor Polis is talking about, he wants to do some some meaningful reform with climate change. Let's support him on the city level, and let's make sure that Denver City Council is on board, or even more aggressive with climate change. So you can start pushing it further than he might be able to at first and bring everybody along with you in the back end? That's right. We usually like to wrap up with final thoughts, uh, sort of whatever's been on your mind for the week, something you want to say or anything like that. We're willing to let you have the last word if you like, or if you want to go first, up to you. Right, we'll go ahead. I'm going to start with uh, Trump's emergency border wall. Oh, Did you want to do that one? No, no let's just... <laughs> you you want to... No, 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 just go ahead. Okay. So I'm going to talk about Trump's emergency border wall. Okay, so Polis tweeted out saying, this is uh, Trump has declared a wasteful wall be built to end an emergency that only exists in his ego. I, I agree. I think it's really a silly thing to do. Uh, it's a dangerous precedent because, well, not necessarily for Democrats, but for Republicans, because if a Democrat takes over, they can declare gun violence a national emergency. They can cl- declare climate change a national emergency. They can do a lot of these things and detract funds and take away from actual emergencies like wildfires, floods, hurricanes, etc. Trump's just an idiot. I'm sorry. That, that's the end of my. That's all I wanted to talk about with that. He's an idiot. So, Eris, you're looking at me all weird, really. Man. I mean, I thought you were. Gonna, I thought you were gonna take a page from my book. But okay. Which one? You know the fuck you book. No, <laughs> no, I'm not gonna say fuck you to him on it. I think it's pretty obvious that he deserves a fuck you, but he's not gonna get it from me. Oh, well. I'm gonna be civil about it, but you can say fuck you yeah, right now if you pretty want. Pretty much what I was gonna go. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Once a week. He's and so once a week, I like to do this. I would like to say one: fuck you, Donald Trump. Fuck you, Donald Trump supporters, and anybody who thinks that building a border wall, whether you support Donald Trump or not, fuck you too. First, everybody who supports these things live in places like Colorado, where we are far away from the border. Sorry, we're not building walls around our states and our cities. As much as I would like to build a wall around Colorado and keep people out from Texas, present company excluded. <laughs> <laughs> so. Just for everybody to have a really great week. Help you fuck you to Donald Trump. My thought of the week is Democrats. Get yourselves together and stop fighting over the sex ed bill. It would be a much better idea to split it up into several bills and get some support from conservative Democrats and from some moderate Republicans. I would hate to see this fall into pieces because of people's egos. That's all I got to say for today. Snap. All right. I want to talk about campaigns. I, I happen to <laughs> recently I've, I've, I've experienced a different side of campaigns that I hadn't really experienced before. And I want to talk about values. I think it's important for our elected officials to have a system of values this is, might be related to the fuck you Trump, I don't know, but I think it's important for us to have a system of values, for all of our elected officials to have a system of values and a moral compass with which we make decisions. And we have three levels of government, local, state, and federal. If, say, at the federal level, we had someone who didn't seem to be using a system of values, I think it's even more important for us to have elected officials at the state and local levels that have a moral compass. And so along those lines, I would say, you know, I've, I've talked a bit about housing. I think we all deserve access to housing. I've talked a bit about transportation. Like we all deserve the freedom to get from A to B and to feel safe while doing it. And I think it's reasonable for us to expect our government to provide that freedom, safety, and access And I would say one last thing is I think it's reasonable. I think we all deserve access to our representative. Our representative should be in the community. Our representative should be representing us. I'm so glad that I'm here, that I have this this journey, that I'm able to experience this process. And I hope that I can provide a value system to city council. So visit ChristopherDenver.com. Donate. And and <laughs> donate, volunteer. There are uh, ways for you to do both of those. You can also call me 
My number is 303-717-9174. That's my cell number. If nothing else, I would love to earn your vote on May 7th. May 7th is my birthday, by the way, so you could give me a great birthday present by giving me your vote. That's cool. Thank you. I like that, yeah. I just want to make a side comment here. I'm amazed at how many politicians actually give out their cell phone number. That's really brave of y'all. <laughs> no, no one calls it. No one calls it. No one calls it. Too. I hear that a lot too. Yeah, I give it out, but nobody ever calls. I've made thousands of phone calls. So uh, in the last month, our team has made 6,700 voter attempts, voter outreach attempts. 6,700 in a month. And I've had one phone call. And it was a woman who said, I don't want to be on your list. Take me off. And she didn't give me your name, her phone number, any sort of identifying information. So I had to use color ID to yeah. figure out how to remove her from the list. I call you, Chris. Awesome. I called you. Uh, I'm not in your You're not a constituent. Anyway, there you go. That's uh, Politically Pissed for this week. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yep. You guys want to say goodbye? Be easy, y'all. Bye. Bye. Yeah, fuck them when we say we're not with them. We're solid and we don't need to kick them. This is no southeast and western. Yeah, guns close doors to the system. Yeah, fuck them when we say we're not with them. We're solid and we don't need to kick them. This is no southeast and western.